First Corinthians 15, please. First Corinthians 15. I want to read to you the text that the Lord has brought upon my heart to explain to you this Resurrection Sunday. First Corinthians 15. And allow me to read verses 12 through 19. First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. And as you're turning there, one thing that I forgot to mention in the announcements was to invite you to stay after the service and enjoy some refreshments and fellowship together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. The Apostle Paul wrote, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Please be seated. The title of the message this morning is The Catastrophic Consequences of Denying the resurrection of Christ. If you were to take a class on all the major world religions and what they teach, you would find that they all have one thing in common. They were founded by one man who attracted a following. And then that one man died. Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, died sometime around the 5th or 6th century B.C. at the age of 80. And tradition says that he was cremated. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, died in 632 A.D. His body to this day rests in Medina, Saudi Arabia, where literally millions of Muslims visit on their pilgrimage to Mecca, which is one of the five pillars of their religion. Abraham, as you know, the patriarch of the Jewish religion, died somewhere around 2000 BC and was buried, the scriptures tell us, in Ephron. Then you have Jesus of Nazareth, who is the cornerstone of Christianity, the world's largest religion, according to the statistical data. This Jesus of Nazareth preached the message of faith and repentance, calling on all men, women, and children to believe in him and him alone. For forgiveness of sin and salvation. This man, Jesus, as you know, also died in 33 AD about and was buried in a borrowed tomb, as we just read from Matthew this morning. All of these historical facts that I just stated on the major world religions would be discussed much further in depth in a collegiate level class. But even so, since I did that in college, I know, unfortunately, that the one thing that separates 
those four religions apart is not emphasized. And therefore, you have countless people walking out of the class, searching for the truth, asking, which one is true? What am I supposed to believe? And the answer to that age-old question can be settled with a one-word, simple answer. Resurrection. Jesus Christ is the only one to have died and rise from the dead eternally and ascend into heaven where he sits as I speak. That truth is what separates our religion from everything else and it provides the basis for your eternal future. Because Christ arose giving clear evidence that God accepted his sacrifice on behalf of sinners, you too, through faith alone, can be certain of your own personal future resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and the believer stand or fall together. In other words, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then the religion of Christianity is just another flavor of works-based, philosophical-based, merit-based religion to help you live a moral life. And in the end, when you pass away, it will do nothing for you. Flat out denying or misunderstanding the implications or remaining ignorant of the resurrection brings with it catastrophic consequences. And this Easter Sunday, I'm going to show you from 1 Corinthians 15 what those consequences are. But before we parachute into this text, uh, listen as I fill you in briefly on the context of this brief passage. The letter of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul in 55 AD to a church in Corinth, which was an ancient city in southern Greece. He wrote this while he was on his third missionary journey. His main purpose for writing to the Corinthians was to address their ungodly behavior, first and foremost. His secondary purpose was to correct them with regard to some basic, foundational, doctrinal truths, including but not limited to the resurrection. Now, anybody remember why broaching the subject of doctrine is perpetually necessary when confronting immorality? It's because, as I've preached before, our doctrine always informs our practice. In other words, wrong living always stems from wrong belief. The same was true in the Corinthian church, and the same goes for us. After having dealt with issues pertaining to the unity in the church, marriage in the church, liberty in the church, and worship in the church, in verses 1 to 14, Paul dealt with the doctrine of the resurrection. And its implications in verse 15, chapter 15, excuse me. So essentially, to summarize all of chapter 15, Paul wanted to get across one specific proposition. That the resurrection of Jesus is what gives us hope for eternity. If true believers are not resurrected after death, as some were asserting in the Corinthian church, then Jesus did not come back from the dead. And if Jesus stayed in the tomb, 
then what's so special and awesome and unique about Christ? If Jesus was just an ordinary, finite human being who possessed no more power than Buddha, Abraham, or Mohammed, then what are we doing? What's the point of anything? Why profess to believe in Christ? Why preach the gospel? Why toil in the ministry? Why stake your life on a man named Jesus? If there is no resurrection in the future for you, then let's all do what we want. Let's all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. To put it in biblical terms, 1 Corinthians 15.13 says, But if there is no resurrection from the dead, Paul says, not even Christ has been raised. That is to say, if you deny the real, literal, physical resurrection of the believer, then the historical account of the fully human, fully God Jesus being miraculously brought back to life is a complete fabrication. But I have good news for you. Jesus did really come back from the dead. After laying in the tomb, stone cold, dead for three days, the scripture tell us. And that means through faith in him and repentance toward God, you can become one with Christ and also live beyond the grave in eternity. But as a messenger of God, I have to give you the whole story, right? I have to tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There are many who do not see the need for a Savior. Who think that they will go to heaven because they deserve it. Who live as if there was never a resurrection. Some are professing Christians who sit in a pew week after week, and some are followers of another religion. And to those precious people, God has a message for them, and it was written down almost 2,000 years ago, by an overzealous former Pharisee named Paul. And we find this information written in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19, where there is a list of five catastrophic consequences of not believing in the resurrection. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, the consequences are catastrophic, and they serve to prove the absolute centrality of the resurrection of, of our Lord. If Christ has not been raised, all is lost. And your religion collapses in a heap of rubble. And if Christ has not been raised, the consequences are beyond calculation, really. They're beyond imagination. However, we can get some idea. By God's grace, he does not leave us completely in the dark with regard to the consequences of denying the resurrection. We get a limited view in this passage. Paul clearly f- spells out five consequences of those who disbelieve or fail to properly understand the implications of res- the resurrection of Christ. First, in verse 14, 
we see the first consequences is that your ministry would be meaningless. Your ministry would be meaningless. He says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The word for preaching does not simply carry the idea of a man standing on an elevated platform and behind a wooden desk, or in some churches, a glass podium. The word certainly does not equate preaching with teaching or speaking. A teacher or a speaker is typically just a conduit information, right? But a preacher delivers the information and then a summons or a call to act or apply the information given. Preaching in the New Testament comes from a Greek word that literally means heralding. It means to cry out and to announce publicly, to proclaim. In ancient times, a king would dispatch his herald to the city streets in order to deliver a public decree. And it might go something like this. Attention, citizens. I have a message from his royal majesty. We have received intel that the neighboring country has plans to infiltrate our borders and ransack the castle by force. There's the information. And now this herald is going to deliver a summons to action. Therefore, by order of the king, in order to protect our lands against enemy invasion, all men between the ages of 18 and 45 will arm themselves and report to the city gates immediately. Any and all deserters will be punished accordingly. Long live the king. That is a message a herald would deliver to the people, and it had a binding action attached to it. Brothers and sisters, that is what you are to do. You are all heralds of the truth. If you believe the resurrection is true, We deliver a message. That message is the story of the gospel. And it demands action. It demands that all men everywhere repent, turn from sin, and place their trust in Christ alone, not in themselves. The message that you and I herald is God's gospel. We do not merely talk about the gospel, teach the gospel, or casually invite people to consider it. Because that's not what a herald does. He announces it. And he attaches a summons. But if you don't really believe or understand the biblical implications of the resurrection, then every time you evangelize, Every time you deliver this summons, it's for nothing. It's meaningless. Look again at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, preaching is in vain. Meaning it's empty, it's without substance, it's void of spiritual value, it's meaningless. It's aimless and fruitless. Now it comes down to this. Either the tomb is empty or the gospel is empty and it means nothing. And the entire structure of Christianity, the substance of what we preach, collapses. Because the resurrection is, listen, the foundation of our faith. 
I recently heard of one of the most devastating disasters in American history. Has anybody ever heard of the Johnstown Flood? After many days of heavy rain in May of 1889, the South Fork Dam experienced a catastrophic failure. It was 14 miles upstream from a little town in Pennsylvania called Johnstown. When it broke and it released 16, get this, 16 million tons of water. Isn't that incomprehensible? Traveling at a speed of about 40 miles per hour and reaching a height of about 40 feet, the waves delivered a fatal blow to the population of Jonestown, claiming over 2,000 lives. The investigation afterwards revealed that the dam could not withstand major storms because its structural integrity was flawed. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ functions as the structure of our faith. It's what supports the gospel. It is why you can be 100% certain that you too will be resurrected after this earthly life. But without it, if it isn't true, and if you don't believe it in your heart, the entire structure of Christianity collapses like the South Fork Dam. If the remains of Jesus Christ still lie in some obscure Jewish grave, the good news that the apostles preached is fiction, and it deserves to be forgotten. In other words, as Paul puts it, we have nothing to preach. That brings us to the second consequence of not believing the resurrection. It's this. Not only would your ministry be meaningless, but your faith would be meaningless. Also in verse 14, your faith also is vain. It's the same word he used previously. It's without content. It's without reality. You may believe, but your faith is worthless. Being completely void of spiritual value. Now, as we read this, it begs the question, what is faith? Is it simply an imagination based on tradition? An idea founded upon a myth? A dream predicated upon some kind of abstract, personalized fable? Some may say so. To some, what you place your faith in is simply a matter of what you were taught as a child. As a pastor, I hear that pretty often. This is what I was taught. Or somebody might believe something they find interesting and intriguing. Or somebody might believe something that has had a unique or special impact on them for whatever reason. But the gospel does not fall into one of those categories because the good news of Jesus is, listen to this, based on historical fact, the resurrection. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 8, where it says, He, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So you see, if Jesus didn't literally, physically, really walk out of the tomb on the first day of the week, then our faith is based on hearsay, a rumor, and a hoax. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead and walk out of that tomb, then Christianity has to be the place to find the truth. And if it's all where we find the truth, then it demands that you consider the gospel. It demands that you need to be forgiven. And it demands that you repent and believe and confess Jesus as Lord. Perhaps if you read the news, you read a story January of this year of a group of children who were diagnosed with cancer. They were treated with fake chemotherapy in Mexico. This came out after a government official alleged that the pediatric chemotherapy wasn't really a medication. It was an inert substance. Practically, it was distilled water. Now, that is truly tragic. Because those families had faith that those drugs were real. And that they were helping their children. Sadly, some of those children died. Now, that is a heartbreaking illustration of the fact that no amount of faith helps if the object of that faith is flawed. Our faith is an arisen Lord. And if he's still dead, then the faith you profess is worthless, just like those poor, precious parents who had to bury their children because they were deceived and given phony medicine. On Easter Sunday, we're blessed to be reminded of the primacy and the centrality of the resurrection of Christ, which continues to serve as the immovable object of your belief that you will one day be glorified. At the same time, though, But you should be encouraged by this. You also must remember that it's only through genuine faith in Jesus that we will see this resurrection. Without true faith in the resurrection, all that's left to be found in this fallen world is meaningless faith. That's the second consequence. The third consequence of not believing the resurrection of Christ is in verse 15. It's this. Your testimony would be false. If Christ has not been risen, your ministry is worthless, your faith is worthless, but your testimony would also be false. He says in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he has raised Christ, whom we did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. What Paul is saying here is that all Christians world, worldwide are perpetual liars if some of what the Corinthians were saying is true, that there is no resurrection of the believer. 
Interesting word choice by the Apostle Paul here in verse 15. The verb we are found is often used of discovering the true nature of someone's character. If some of the Corinthians were right that the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And that means that everyone whom has preached the gospel in and around the Roman Empire have been found out to be perjurers, phonies, tricksters, con artists, snake oil salesmen. Today we might say used car salesmen or charlatans. But notice how Paul ups the ante here. We aren't just liars if we say there's no resurrection from the dead. We testify against God. In other words, we claim to speak on behalf of God when in actuality we haven't been told to say anything at all from him. We see this in the Old Testament, don't we? Where false prophets who say they speak for Yahweh when they really don't? Jeremiah 23, for example, says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they would have stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people. And then, of course, Jeremiah goes on to pronounce judgment upon these self-appointed prophets for speaking a man-made message. So do you understand what Paul is saying here in in verse 15? If Christ hasn't been raised, then all who have taught that God raised the dead are just like those false prophets in Jeremiah's day. They're liars. They're not to be trusted. And this would certainly include the eyewitnesses in verses 5 to 7. Paul himself, all of the apostles... And it would even include Jesus himself. And that would include every pastor that you have allowed to influence you. And it includes me. If what I have taught you about your future hope is false, then Christ is still dead. And I am a liar. And a phony. The fourth tragic consequence of not believing in the resurrection is that your salvation would be absent. Your salvation would be absent. Verses 16 to 18. In verse 16, Paul reminded his readers of the flow of his argument by simply repeating similar words. He says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ had been raised. And in verse 17, appears to repeat what he already stated in verse 14. But he does use a different Greek word to help describe the kind of faith they had if there were no resurrection from the dead. It's translated as worthless in your version. And it was used to refer to someone building a house on a sand, on sand, chasing the wind, shooting the stars, or pursuing one's own shadow. (laughs) Now, all of those endeavors, I've never tried all of them. But all those endeavors would be a complete waste of time, I think, wouldn't they? It would be a waste of energy, a waste of resources. So Paul, in verse 16 and 17, most of 17, is saying that a Christian, without affirming and understanding the implications of the resurrection, is just as fruitless 
as someone who builds a mansion on the beach. But at the end of verse 17, Paul continues to build his case of proving how catastrophic it is to deny the resurrection of Christ. And perhaps this is the scariest part of the passage. He says very plainly, you are still in your sins. In other words, if Christ had not been raised, you have not been forgiven. And now listen carefully. This is the key to understanding the primacy, the primary implication of the resurrection. It proved that the Father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice for sin, thus securing our justification. If God had not raised Jesus from the dead, then it would, it would have been a public statement to the world that, number one, he was not who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And number two, it would have told the world, there's no sacrifice for you. And if there's no sacrifice for you, what does that mean? It means you're going to pay for your own sin. And then you might as well just take your pick between Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism. Because a Christless Christianity is the same thing. And the more severe implication of not having been forgiven is spelled out in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep in this context is a euphemism for death. Paul isn't talking about soul sleep or annihilationism, which is simply the belief that our souls become extinguished at death. He's not talking about purgatory. He's saying that all whom have died, even those who have professed to be believers, that denied the resurrection and did not believe in the resurrection, are paying for their sins right now, forever, in hell. That is a severe consequence, wouldn't you say? The fifth consequence of not believing in the resurrection of Christ is in verse 19. If you fail to believe in the resurrection or you misunderstand it, your life would be miserable. Look in verse 19. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to pitied. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we would be in a position rightly deserving nothing but the compassion reserved for fools, as one commentator noted. If we only have hope in Christ in the here and now, as many do, then we're all just another group of blind followers observing a charade and therefore being deserved to be looked down with pity, compassion, 
like a lunatic who frantically talks endlessly on the streets about the end of the world. After, after my conversion to Christ, we were living in Fairbanks, Alaska. And I remember one day walking towards the entrance of a grocery store and seeing a man sitting at a table near the entrance. We made eye contact, and he said something like, God bless you. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was some, you know, cliche Christian greeting. And so I apparently had the time to chat, so I saw it as an evangelistic opportunity, so I sat down with man at the table. Now, this guy was a stereotypical homeless man. His clothes were filthy and torn. He hadn't shaved in years. He stunk to high heaven. And he had every possession he owned on his person. I can't remember if he had a shopping cart or whatever. But what happened next, I'll never forget. After I sat down and asked him why he was in the situation, he told me, he did have a family and a job, but he deserted it all. can't remember why. But he abruptly pulled out some old, worn-out paper with some songs written on it. And he just began singing. <laughs> and he encouraged me to sing with him. So here I am in front of this store in Fairbanks, Alaska, sitting at a table with a homeless man singing a song I've never sung before. So it was kind of awkward. Jennifer was not with me, or else she wouldn't have probably joined. But a few minutes, a few minutes later, after singing, it was very embarrassing, but I didn't have the courage to get up and leave. He pointed to some birds that were flying around, and they were perched up on some light poles. And he says, you see those birds flying around? I said, yeah. He said, you see all these people in this parking lot coming and going to and fro, going about their life? I said, yeah. He said, they have no clue what's coming. And I politely said my goodbyes and went about my business. Now, as you can imagine, I walked away from that conversation as a brand new convert, completely perplexed and very disturbed. But I also left that conversation with great pity for that man. Because not only was he physically miserable, he was spiritually and mentally off his rocker. He was crazy. If we hope in Christ only in this present life, listen, we are just like that poor, crazy, homeless man. We're loony. And we're miserable. Because the resurrection gives us hope for the future. So these consequences of there being no resurrection of Christ means, this was Paul's point, there is no resurrection for you.
And if there's no resurrection for you, Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, has written that your ministry would be meaningless, your faith would be meaningless, your testimony would be false, and your salvation would be absent, and your life would be miserable. Are those indeed catastrophic consequences? But on Resurrection Sunday, the whole world has the immense privilege of being reminded that there is life after the grave. Scripture is clear about that, as I hope I've just demonstrated to you. But the Scripture is also clear about something else. That this resurrection is only promised to sinners whom have been justified by faith alone. To those who have been crushed. To those who have repentant hearts. Those who have genuine trust that God sent Jesus. His one and only unique kind of a son to be born of a virgin. So that he would not be tainted by the sin of Adam. He obeyed every law that God gave, which is what God requires, because he is perfect and he is just and holy. Thus, Jesus qualified himself to serve as the unblemished lamb of God who can take away your sin. He went to the cross where he did not merely die. You see, I'm getting to the preaching part here. I just told the story that every single one of you know well. But you see, what was happening on that cross? What was happening on that cross when Jesus died was that he became our substitute. Absorbing the full wrath of God in the place of the one who believes. In other words, you have to understand and be reminded that it is you who deserve to be hung on that tree because of your incalculable sin. That's the bad news. But God sent Jesus to take the wrath of God on your behalf. And after Jesus offered himself as an atoning sacrifice... He was laid in a borrowed tomb for three days. And then God raised him from the dead in order to officially, publicly, and eternally show the world that death could no longer hold the souls of men. Because justice had been served. The ransom for sin had been accepted. And sinners, through faith alone in Christ alone, can be sure of their future resurrection and not look to only this life and not fear death. And if you understand that, brothers and sisters, my friends, if you understand that, your ministry would be meaningful. Your faith would be meaningful. Your testimony would be true. Your salvation would be present, not absent. And your life would be joyful. Amen.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Christ and his resurrection. Thank you so much that we do not have to have a meaningless life, a meaningless ministry. Thank you that we do not have to go through life ignorantly thinking that we have salvation when we don't. Thank you that we don't have to go through life, Lord, miserable. Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would please cause your spirit to regenerate those who need to experience true salvation. And may those precious saints that are here today be encouraged and inflamed to go out and serve you and glorify you because we know that you are alive. For those, of, for those who hear who doubt, who wrestle with whether or not the gospel is true, give them this certainty, Lord. Give them this confidence that you are the true God and you are the true way of salvation because Christ has been risen. Father, we thank you for this brief time to fellowship and to worship you. We love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.